The Wiser Podcast, conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the WITS Institute for Social and Economic Research. Welcome to The Wiser Podcast. I'm Cizwe Mbofu-Walsh, postdoctoral fellow at Wiser. Professor Ashil Mbembe is a world-renowned theorist, public intellectual, and professor of history and politics at Wiser. Professor Dilip Menon is Mellon Chair in Indian Studies and Director of the Center for Indian Studies in Africa at WITS. In this two-part podcast, they explore the newly published book Capitalisms, A Global History, co-edited by Menon and published by Oxford University Press. I would like to welcome you to a conversation with Professor Dilip Menon. The focus of this conversation is the book Dilip and his colleague Kaveh Yazdani have just edited with the Oxford University Press, and whose title is Capitalisms, A Global History. I will briefly highlight two things. First, a feature of the global intellectual landscape is the extent to which uh, the study of economic life, economic ideas, economic actors and institutions is forcefully back on the agenda. This return, uh, it seems to me, has accompanied the expansive tide of market forces, at least since the end of the Cold War and the crisis that have come with uh, this expansion. But it is also the result of, uh, I would say, the uh, relentless critique of neoliberalism, if uh, by such a, a contested term we understand in short, the um, attempt at reshaping human life, at redefining uh, the human, human beings in particular, as competitors and consumers. So that's the first uh, uh, thing I wanted to highlight. The second is the renewed interest in capitalism as such, in the sense that capitalism is once again at the forefront of uh, historical analysis of how the modern world was made. Uh, New histories of capitalism are being written with um, a focus on a huge variety of uh, things, corporations, money, banks, stock exchanges, uh, contracts, uh, the market itself, and its place in uh, human experience. Capitalism's global history comprises two parts. The first part is titled Major Debates and Controversies, and the second is called Case Studies in the History of Capitalisms. Among the case studies covered by the book are England, Japan, Early Modern China, Egypt, Iran, and Song China. Besides these national trajectories, a number of thematic or regional issues are covered in particular in the first part, such as the case of Southeast Asia, New World Slavery, or the role of silver in the globalization of capitalism. But before we move further, uh, Dilip, let me ask you, why this book? Why now? And why in this form? We know uh, that uh, in 2014, Uh, Larry Neal and Jeffrey Williamson published The Cambridge History of Capitalism, a two-volume work that pretended to provide an authoritative account of the uh, evolution of capitalism and its spread 
an impact in the world. Let me ask you, is your book a response to the Cambridge history of capitalism? Well, the Cambridge history of capitalism was the immediate provocation with its institutional economics approach that worked with minimal definitional criteria, you know, like the existence of states, enforceable contracts, markets, and property rights. This, of course, takes us back to Babylon and makes the idea of capitalism an ineffable trans-historical category. Since 2008, uh, and the financial crisis, there's been a renewed interest in capitalism, but I believe that this has imposed a presentism, as also making a current economic and political arrangement the entire horizon of our thinking, which too is arguably historical. There is still a need to engage with the histories of capitalisms, you know, both in the plural, since we are still carrying the baggage of earlier scholarship into the present. Um, as I see it, there are three problems. The first is a kind of myopia, seeing capitalism within a limited temporal and spatial paradigm as having originated in Europe in the 18th century. The second, of course, is ubiquity, that capitalism is all there is and that we are like the characters in the Truman Show. There is no outside. So neoliberalism is another time within capitalism, just as welfareism was another time, a prior time within capitalism. The third problem is that of a kind of theology, that while there may have been economic development elsewhere, true capitalism finds its fulfillment in Europe. It's like the coming of Christ, an ineluctable telos, as it were. So what precisely does this volume do? Well, this volume moves away from the self-regarding narrative of Europe's uniqueness, you know, rationality, Protestant ethic, and so on, to look at the histories of economic and social formations in the world at large. We stress a factor which is underplayed in most narratives, I believe. This is the generation of what I would call a library of institutions, categories, and techniques from forms of organization of labor and capital to technological innovation over the long durée from the 10th to the 18th century that circulate globally through maritime conquest, through, uh, sorry, through maritime trade, through conquest, and intellectual intermediaries as diverse as the Arabs and the Jesuits. Great, I understand all of that. But moving away from what you call I quote you, the um, self-regarding narrative of Europe's uniqueness seem, to me at least, to leave your project in a double tension. Almost uh, every single contributor to this volume seems to feel the need at some point or the other in their contribution to come back to the... Um, almost inevitable question of what is capitalism? How should we define its essential features? Is capitalism a strictly economic process? What are the defining elements that distinguish capitalism from all other forms of socioeconomic organizations? A number Uh, of the contributors, such as uh, Joseph Inikori, settle with the classic Marxian and to some extent Weberian definition according to which uh, 
A key feature of capitalism is the division of classes between propertyless wage earners and uh, entrepreneurs who own capital. Uh, yet others seem to be satisfied with uh, a flexible, almost open-ended definition in which uh, capitalism is a mode of production based fundamentally on market exchange. Uh, they start from this presupposition and then they go on looking for the market conditions which produced over long time periods the mass of workers separated from their means of production on the one hand and uh, on the other hand the entrepreneurs who accumulated these means of production. Is this tension productive? Is capitalism a strictly economic process? I would say not. No, it pervades consciousness in terms of social relations and creates desires as much as dispositions of self. However, the focus of the volume is to look at the emergence of economic and social processes from the 10th to the 18th century, which are crucial to the formation and not in a teleological sense of what we understand as industrial capitalism and its life world from the 18th century onwards. Are there distinctive forms of capitalism that allow us to recognize it, you know, as one might recognize a leopard from its spots? Arguably not. Since there continues to be an overlay of various forms of labor, from wage to bondage, that characterizes even the present, and the coexistence of mercantile, industrial, and financial capital in concert with each other. The authors were deliberately chosen for their different methodological approaches, and the tension that you notice is, I would hope, a productive one. The second tension stems from the notion which uh, haunts, I would say, almost every single essay in this book, the notion that uh, capitalism arose in Europe. Over time, it then spread around the world, and in the process, it encountered countless obstacles, some of which it managed to overcome, while others it could not overcome. With regard to the second tension, that the spectre of Europe haunts the book, I would disagree. There is only one essay, you know, which was deliberately chosen, that was of uh, Henry Heller, that re-engages with the Brenner-Wallerstein debates and argues that no matter the historical trajectories, Europe and America are what Heller calls the headquarters of capitalism. If you go back to the period uh, discussed in the volume, Europe was just beginning to recover from disintegrated markets, demonetization and the de-urbanization of the Middle Ages, when Arab civilization and trade in the Mediterranean were leading to theorizations of the production process in a needle factory, for example, by Abu Muhammad Ghazali in the 12th century, of labor value by Ibn Khaldun in the 14th century in his Muqaddimah. Interestingly, uh, if you think about Adam Smith's example where he speaks about uh, production process in a pin factory, in some sense it echoes Ghazali's own example. And here we know that the mediating figure is Diderot and the, uh, the encyclopedists who actually pick up on this earlier Arab thinking. 
We have to think about what the great historian of Islamic civilizations, Marshall Hodgson, called cumulative histories of the Afro-Asian Oikumene that circulate through the space that we call Europe. So uh, to differentiate from the idea of the great divergence, that everyone was neck to neck till Europe supposedly took its special path, I think we have to reckon with the idea of the great convergence when disparate libraries of categories and techniques and circulation are brought together. You know, Bridel, uh, for example, in his History of Capitalism, points to the influence of Indian cloth printing and dyeing and the development of metallurgy in Western Europe and Russia as scientists tried to figure out the secrets of Indian wood steel, you know, Damask steel as we know it. There is also the circulation of ideas. Um, Alexander Bevilacqua has written about the Republic of Arabic letters in Europe, including translations of the Quran by Arthur Sale. And there is also the fact that both Kuesne, the physiocrat, and Turgo, an early proponent of economic liberalism, were hugely influenced by Chinese thought and institutions and state practice through the mediation of the Jesuits. You are obviously uh, inviting us to turn our back to the uh, Great Divergence hypothesis and to work with uh, a timescale that is deeper and I would add fractal. Yet uh, reading your book, the book you edited, I kept thinking of another book written 20 years ago by Dipesh Chakrabarti, Provincializing Europe. If I remember very well, a key part of Chakrabarti's argument was that most of the histories of the non-Western societies had been reduced to histories of capitalist transitions or transitions to modernity, the original site of which was always going to be Europe in any case. He then on, went on to argue that uh, capitalist transitions in non-Western societies were almost always either incomplete or lacking. His way of uh, getting out of this conundrum was then to make the case that uh, every case of transition to capitalism was a case of translation as well. Now, I understand that your own project is not to repeat the argument already made in provincializing Europe, although uh, many a reader might be curious as to what exactly you add to that debate or to other debates fostered, for instance, by Jean and John Komarov in their theory from the South. Let me put my question in this way. Are you trying to reroute these earlier debates on entirely new tracks um, by deprovincializing capitalism? Where does it leave Europe? In other words, what remains of Europe after the story of capitalism has been globalized. <laughs> well, we must remember that Dipesh's book was written in the last century, almost a generation ago. I was younger, I had hair and so on and so forth. As of now, Europe, as much as the idea of Europe, is in disarray. 
and thinkers like Esposito have been arguing for a new philosophy for Europe that engages with its exigent present of immigrants and the economic downturn, the demise of earlier ideas of social democracy and so on. I think we need to remember that the use-by date for Europe, as much as post-colonial theory, is over now. And this is something that, Ashil, I mean, you, you uh, engage with and uh, use in your own work. That said, as the political theorist uh, Sudipta Kavira just pointed out, the European trajectory is merely an ideal type. So, for example, India had democracy and full voting rights before industrialization and mass literacy. So, as to deprovincializing capitalism, it's important to remember that Europe was just one cog in a set of interconnected processes. And the book certainly decenters Europe from the capitalism narrative. In terms of decentering Europe from the capitalism narrative, as you put it, are there particular contributions in your edited collection you would like to single out? If I were to actually uh, think about uh, particular contributions in the book, I mean, they're all important contributions, but let me take up a few. Uh, Dennis Flynn, for example, shows how the ecological devastation of the Americas in the 16th century also led to the dissemination of agricultural products like rubber that were crucial to the Industrial Revolution. He also argues that Chinese agricultural expansion was dependent on the movement of crops from the Americas like peanuts and sweet potato, which led to a different nutrition regime. Um, Leonard Marcus's uh, essay argues, and this actually goes back to the question of the seemingly essential features of capitalism. Uh, Marcus argues in an extension of Eric Williams that slavery was part of the ensemble of global capitalism. It's inherent too. The plantation complex in Madeira, Sao Tome, and the Canaries, he argues, was the first agricultural revolution preceding the one in England. Again, the self-congratulatory argument that has been made for Europe's industrious revolution was largely about Europe's superfluous consumption of sugar and tobacco that instituted coercive labor regimes elsewhere. Alessandro Stanziani argues for Russia, and this is uh, interesting because Russia is usually seen as distinctive in Marxist theoretical terms, the Russian road, we know the work of uh, Theodore Shannon as well, as an extension of Marx. Stanziani argues that forced labor and capitalist development could go hand in hand. This is not surprising since contemporary capitalism also encompasses a range of labor practices. So we see serf entrepreneurs from 1750 onwards and both landed aristocracy and peasants engaging in capitalist production. The cliched historical division of labor between advanced industrial and backward agricultural regions argued from the Western European experience needs revision. <laughs>